Good morning. Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. So we're beginning a series today in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Even if you are not familiar with the Bible, uh, Philippians has some of the most famous verses in Scripture. Things like, um, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, or to live is Christ, to die is gain, or if you've ever been to a marathon, uh, it seems like every other sign on the race course says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. These are famous verses. They're triumphal verses. In fact, one of the dominant themes in this letter is joy. Paul keeps saying, I rejoice, I rejoice, I want you to rejoice all of which would make it easy to think that Paul is saying that the Christian life is one where you're always triumphing, always victorious, you're always overcoming, you're always lifted up on wings of eagles, and if that's not happening in your life, if there's any suffering or hardship or failure, then there's something deficient about your Christianity. Friends, that is the opposite of what Paul is telling us in this letter, because that becomes especially clear when we realize that Paul is writing this letter from a Roman jail cell. He's literally in chains. His, his career as a church planter has been derailed. His reputation is shattered because of the shame of incarceration. And on top of that, he's facing the very real possibility of execution. And it's in the midst of all that that Paul says, I rejoice. And that is where this letter gets its power. It's kind of like a furnace. You know, a furnace is capable of sustaining um, incredibly high heat so that whatever you put into it, it purifies it, and it ends up coming out even more beautiful and pure than it was before. But in order to get that, you have to turn up the heat. And the heat is turned way up in Paul's life right now, but the things that are coming out are beautiful. His life is overflowing with a joy that can't be touched by his circumstances. Where did Paul get that joy? And what's more, 
where could you or I find a joy that actually increases the more the heat gets turned up in your life? Because the heat is turned up in some of your lives right now, and if it's not, it's like the weather in St. Louis. Just wait, it'll change. If your heart's deepest joy is tied to the circumstances of your life, then your joy will always be in danger. But what if there was a way to find a joy that, um, that nothing could touch no matter what else is happening in your life? That's what this letter is about. And the first 11 verses give us an introduction to this by showing us three of the main ingredients in Paul's joy, which can be our joy as well. So let's take a look at them because they all go together. This morning we're going to see there's an explosion of love, a vision for the best, and a furnace of longing. Okay? An explosion of love, a vision for the best, and a furnace of longing. First, this passage shows us an explosion of love. Paul begins like this. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, and all my prayers for all of you I always pray. Now, this is uh, very similar to many of Paul's other letters. He begins with prayer, but this prayer is a little different um, because he adds on two little words at the end. He says, I always pray with joy. So Paul is rejoicing here, but why? Well, he gives us a couple of reasons, and the first is this. He says it's because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This word partnership is a very famous word in the Bible. The word koinonia, you may have heard that word. It often means different things like fellowship or community. But here, it means that the Philippians were really like investment partners in the gospel with Paul. Partners in prayer, partners in bearing witness to the gospel. But especially here, it means financial support. Because in Roman jails, they didn't feed you. The only way you eat is if you actually buy your own food. So one of the main reasons that Paul is writing this letter is as a thank you note to the Philippians for their sacrificially generous financial support of him while he's in prison. But that's not the only reason Paul rejoices, because if he just stopped here, it would be easy to think that Paul is rejoicing because their financial support made his life a little bit easier as if their money was like a panacea for all of his sufferings, which means that his joy would be completely focused on himself. But Paul goes on to tell them the real reason he has so much joy. He says he's praying with joy because he's confident of this, that he, that's God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that the real reason he's rejoicing in them is because their finance, not because of how their financial generosity affected him, but because it's evidence of something God is doing in them. In other words, Paul's joy is not tied to the circumstances of his own life, but to God's transforming work in someone else's life. He's saying, I'm rejoicing in your good work for God, not because it made my life a little easier. I'm rejoicing in your good work for God because it's evidence of God's good work in you. Now, here's the question. Why does Paul rejoice in them so much? The answer is not rocket science. It's because he loves them. It's because Paul loves them. Notice how he goes on to say that it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. This is very... Um, warm language. He goes on to say after that, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
Paul is filled with God's love for the Philippians. It's God's love. Notice he says it's the affection of Christ Jesus. So he's filled with God's love, but God's love is infectious. He goes on to say this, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So in other words, he's saying they're already abounding in love. He's just praying that their love would abound even more. In other words, Paul is filled with God's love. They're filled with God's love. This is an explosion of love. You know, when Paul first went to Philippi, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 16, he went there filled with God's love for them, but his love caught fire in them so that they started loving him. The more Paul loved them, the more they loved him, and the more they loved him, the more he loved them, and it was just this explosion of love amongst them. You know, um, it's kind of like, you know how an echo diminishes every time it bounces off a hard service until eventually the sound waves just fade away into nothing? This love is the opposite of that. Every time this love bounces off of something, it amplifies and grows. It's like, a, it's like a nuclear chain reaction of burning, multiplying love. In fact, um, one of the most stunning pictures of this, to me, is from The Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri. It's a very long poem in which Dante ends up in heaven. But while he's there, at one point he meets um, a thousand souls. He calls them a thousand splendors because there's this bright radiance that's emanating from them. But as soon as these souls see Dante, they get really excited. They surround him and, and they say this. They say, look, this is one who will cause our loves to grow. There's a, actually a famous picture of that scene right there. Look, this is one who will cause our loves to grow. Now, think about this. If anyone ought to already be filled to capacity with love, like you can't love anymore, you would think it would be souls in heaven. And yet here they're saying that as soon as they see him, it's causing their loves to grow. It's a nuclear chain reaction of love. They see him, it makes their love grow. But as soon as they love him, it makes his love grow. And as soon as they see how much their love is causing his love to grow, his love causes their love to grow even more. It's like a burning, multiplying explosion of love. In fact, this scene all week kept reminding me of another scene from another very famous story, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. It's all about Harry and his friends who are hunting horcruxes. A horcrux is an item or like a memento that in which Lord Voldemort, the evil Lord Voldemort, has deposited a part of his soul so that he can live forever. And at one point in the story, Harry and his friends end up in the bank vault of Bellatrix Lestrange, who is one of Voldemort's servants. And they know there's a horcrux in there, and they're looking for it. But in order to protect the horcrux, there's enchantments on everything inside the vault. So that if you even just barely touch something like bloink, it immediately ex explodes exponentially into a, a million identical objects. So for instance, at one point, they're in the vault, uh, vault and Hermione, she accidentally touches a goblet, and the next thing you know, the, the whole floor is just overflowing with um, an explosion of identical goblets. It's, it's, every time they're bouncing off one another, they just keep exploding and multiplying, and the guide who's brought them in there, this goblin named Griphook, says, well, that's because they're enchanted. Everything you touch burns and multiplies. Everything you touch burns and multiplies. Friends, that is what God's love is like. Everything it touches 
starts burning and radiating and multiplying. It's a nuclear chain reaction of love. And when that love gets to work in your heart, it causes you to look at everyone you meet and say, look, this is one who will cause my love to grow. I don't know about you, but I could use more of that kind of love in my life. And I think we could use more of that kind of love in our world. But how does that happen? Well, that leads to our next point. Uh, We've seen an explosion of love, but next, Paul shows us there's a vision for the best here. Because here's the question. I think we would all say, I would like more love in my life and in the world. But here's the question. What is love? I mean that question seriously. What is love? I think it sounds like a stupid question, like, duh, everybody knows what love is. But can we just think about this for a minute? In our modern Western culture, we have a tendency to define love in terms of freedom and tolerance. And and that's seen in all the slogans that fill our culture, things like live and let live, or follow your heart, or you do you, or, of course, the classic formulation which says everyone should be free to live however they want as long as they don't harm someone else. In our culture, love means that you should never, ever impose your beliefs, your values, or your morality on someone else because that would be harmful and oppressive. And let's just say right at the outset that that is actually a profound affirmation of individual human dignity. And by the way, that affirmation is actually in our culture because of Christianity. For instance, Jacques Derrida was a very famous French postmodern philosopher, definitely not a Christian. And yet at one point he said this, he said, the cornerstone of international law is the sacredness of man as your neighbor made by God. In that sense, the concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept, and I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage. Now, that's kind of a mouthful, but here's this French atheist postmodern philosopher saying that the reason that we affirm individual dignity in our culture is because Jesus affirms individual human dignity. But here's the challenge. We also live in a modern scientific world which says there is no God, therefore there is no inherent meaning and purpose in humanity. Here's why this is so important for us. Think about this for just a moment with me. You know, um, screwdrivers are made for driving screws, right? Knives are made for cutting things. That's what those things are for. But modern science says that human beings aren't for anything, and therefore we must create our own meaning and purpose in this world. So that even if you do believe in God, that idea is like second nature to us. We say, hey, look, nobody can tell you what you're for. Only you can tell you what you're for. But think about this. You know, if you were to use a knife to drive a screw, it'll kind of work. But eventually, it'll ruin the knife. Why? Because that's not what knives are for. In other words, we know what's best for knives because we know what knives are for. Here's the question. How can we say what's best for people if we can't say what people are for? When we say everyone should be free as long as we don't harm others, the only way that makes sense is if we already have some idea of what people are for. If there's some universal design for every human being, which is the very thing our culture denies. But what if people really are for something? Paul is saying that God has begun a, what he called a good work 
in human beings, a good work in human beings. What, what is God's vision for humanity? Notice how he puts it um, at the end of this passage. He says, this is my prayer for you. He says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Paul is saying that real love has knowledge and insight into, um, into the vision of what's best for people. In other words, here's the question, you know, what is best for people? Our culture says what's best for people is that everybody should figure out what's best for themselves. Is that what the vision is here? No. He says the vision is that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is not saying that what's best for people is everyone should figure out what's best for themselves, but that we should be receptive to God's vision and God's work in our lives to form us in the image of Christ, that we would be filled with the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. That's God's universal vision for all human beings. In other words, um, remember our question, how can we say what's best for people if we can't say um, how can we say what's best for people if we can't say what people are for? You know, our culture says what's best for people is that everybody figure that out for themselves. But this passage is saying, no, what's best for people is that we be receptive to God's work in our life to fill us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is God's universal design for all human beings, and that means that we are on a collision course with our culture. Because Remember, our culture says that you should never impose one grand universal human design on all people. That would be harmful. That would be oppressive. Everybody should decide what's best for themselves. But don't you see, that is a universal vision of what's best for all people. It's still a, saying, a way of saying this is what people are for. For instance, um, and by the way, our whole culture, I mean, we're all captive to this um, narrative in our culture. Because remember, everybody should be free to live however they want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. That's what our culture says. But, uh, and you know, remember, it's, we just saw a moment ago, the roots of this actually come from Christianity. It comes from Jesus and his affirmation of individual human dignity. But we've taken an affirmation of individual dignity and turned it into a worship of individual freedom. For instance, uh, Patrick Deneen is a professor of political science at Notre Dame. He wrote a book a few years ago called Why Liberalism Failed. Now, don't be fooled by the title. Liberalism isn't only referring to political liberals or, or progressives. Liberalism, classical liberalism, is a political philosophy that's um, all about liberty, and it's the basis of our American democratic system of government, and it's also something that everybody is part of, both liberals and progressives, as well as conservatives. Liberty. We live in a world that is, um, in a culture that is um, shaped by this ideal of liberty. Now, in the book, Patrick Deneen says that in the ancient world, um, liberty meant that you learn how to get control over yourself so that you are no longer a slave to your selfish desires. But in our modern world, liberty means that you are set free from anything that would prevent you from fulfilling your desires. Or we could say it like this. In the ancient world, liberty meant that you look inside of yourself, and when you see your desires, you learn how to say no. But in the modern world, liberty means you look inside of yourself, and whatever you find there, whatever your heart is telling you, whatever you desire, you look at that and you say, come to me, my little angel muffin. <laughs> liberty 
means doing whatever we want, not being free from our selfish desires. Now, friends, here's the point. Our culture has not escaped a universal vision of what's best for people. We have simply substituted an alternative universal vision of what's best for all people. In other words, our culture says that you should never impose one vision, one universal design on all human beings, but that is a universal design for all human beings. Can we just ask the question, what kind of fruit is that bearing in our society? How's this working out for us? In other words, what kind of fruit are we seeing um, in our politics or on the internet or in our mental health or in our social relations? And while you're pondering that question, ask yourself, what would it look like to live in a world that um, is filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ? What would it look like to live in a world that's filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which in another letter Paul says is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I would like to live in a world like that. Would you? If so, that leads to our last point. Paul has shown us an explosion of love. He's shown us a vision for the best. But the last ingredient in Paul's joy that we're looking at this morning is there's a furnace of longing. Remember, Paul's deepest joy is completely wrapped up in seeing God's transforming work in other people. How did that happen to him? Because I don't know about you, but oftentimes, I find my own life and my own um, well-being far more compelling than what's going on in other people's lives, and I'm just going to admit that to you. But Paul, I mean, what fired his heart so much that his deepest joy is completely wrapped up in God's transformation in other people's lives? How did he get there? Well, he tells us in this passage, remember he said, um, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. What do we think about this word affection? It's kind of a warm word, right? But does it communicate passion? Like if you fall in love with somebody and you tell them, you take the plunge and you say, I, I, I am so in love with you. And they say, I have so much affection for you. <laughs> How are you going to feel? Not very good. Kind of like you just got relegated to the friend zone. Affection is a warm word, but it's not a passionate word. And so with all due um, respect for the translators, uh, you know, affection is nowhere near a strong enough word to describe how Paul really feels about the Philippians, because this word affection is, is the Greek word splanknon, which is kind of a fun word to say. Can we say that together? Splanknon. Splanknon um, literally means your internal organs or your guts. So the old King James Version translates this verse, I long for you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Splanknon. Splanknon is a, a, a love that is, is, it comes from the deepest, innermost parts of you. It's not just affection. It's a raging furnace of gut love. How did Paul get this gut love in his life? Remember, he tells us that it's not actually his love. It's the love of Jesus Christ. It's not a love that originates within ourselves. It's a love that is implanted in us from Jesus in fact, the, the, a better, I, well, I like this translation. This is my translation. It's the ESV, Eric Stiller version. God can testify how I long for all of you with the gut love of Jesus Christ himself. 
That's what Paul is saying here. It's Jesus' love. It's not a love. It's not Paul's love that's at work in his life. It's Christ's love that's in work in his love. Christ's gut love at work in his life. Friends, we need this kind of love at work in our life because it's not our love that's at work. It's Jesus' love that's at work in the world, and we need this love in our lives. So here's the thing. Where do we get it? You know, whenever the Gospels talk about um, Splanchnon, the Gospels are the biographical accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. Whenever this word shows up in the, in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, it's always tied to Jesus. It's either describing Jesus or it's coming from Jesus' lips. It's kind of like Jesus' calling card. You know how your business card has your name and what you do? Jesus' card has Jesus Christ Splanchnon. This is what Jesus does. So that every time in the Gospels, when it talks about Jesus being moved with pity or compassion, when it says that over and over again, this is the word it's using, splanknon. Jesus is filled with splanknon for human beings. That means that the only way our deepest joy can be wrapped up in God's transforming work in other people is if we are filled with the splanknon gut love of Jesus Christ. And the only place we can get that is from the cross. Because the cross is the ultimate furnace of splanknon. The cross is the ultimate explosion of love. Because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God and the creator of all things, He's the only one who has the right to say that everybody else ought to be focused on Him. And yet, this God came to earth as a human being so that He could focus all of His love on you, so that He could heal you and transform you on the cross healed and transformed not into your vision for yourself, but into His vision for you. And that's hard because the world hated Jesus, and yet Jesus loved the world. The world rejected Jesus and His vision and threw Him into the raging furnace of crucifixion. But when they nailed Jesus to the cross, far from extinguishing His gut love, it ignited a, an explosion of gut love that has been reverberating and amplifying and multiplying throughout the centuries. An explosion of love throughout the centuries so that the more you see Jesus on the cross loving you on the cross, dying for you on the cross, the more His gut love comes into your life and starts filling your heart. Do you see Jesus doing that for you? You know, in the most recent season of the TV show Stranger Things, there's a character uh, named Eddie Munson. Eddie is a, as you can see, is a long-haired rocker from the 80s. He was the president of the Dungeons and Dragons club at his local high school. Um, unfortunately, all his classmates mocked and rejected him. And as if that weren't bad enough, a cheerleader named Chrissy is bizarrely murdered in his trailer home by demonic forces that are attacking the town. But the town doesn't know that. They think Eddie did it. And so as a result, the whole town turns against Eddie, and he has to run for his life. But at the end of the season, instead of running, Eddie stops running, and he joins the fight against the evil forces that are attacking the town. But Eddie doesn't just fight. He gives his life. And his uncle is heartbroken over this. He doesn't know what actually happened to Eddie, but Eddie's friend Dustin meets Mr. Munson at the end of the show, and he explains to Mr. Munson the true nature of Eddie's sacrifice. He says, Mr. Munson, I wish the town could have gotten to know him, really know him, because they would have loved him, Mr. Munson. 
they would have loved him. Even at the very end, he never stopped being himself despite everything. I never even saw him get mad. He could have run, he could have saved himself, but he fought. He fought and died to protect this town that hated him. He wasn't just innocent, Mr. Munson. He was a hero. You know, I have no idea whether the people who wrote Stranger Things are Christians, but man, oh man, if that isn't a picture of Jesus, I don't know what is. Because the world hated Jesus, but Jesus loved the world. The world hated Jesus, but if they could just get to know him, they would love him, really love him, because Jesus didn't just give his life to protect one little town that hated him. He gave his life to save a whole world that hated him. And the more you see that love, the more you see Jesus loving you like that on the cross, the more you see him dying for you like that on the cross, the more it causes you to say, look, this is one who will cause my love to grow. Friends, if you're here this morning and maybe you're exploring faith or you're curious about Christianity or skeptical about Christianity, I don't know, wherever you might be at, but if that describes you in any um, manner, I want to can I actually gently challenge you to reflect on what your vision of what's best for people is? Contrary to what our culture tells us, um, there's no such thing as everybody deciding what's best for themselves. That is actually a very um, Western, modern Western, culturally specific narrative that is in our culture. There's no such thing as everybody just deciding for themselves. That is a universal design for all people. Um, how's that working out for us? Would you reflect on that? And while you're doing that, I would encourage you to um, ponder the possibility that um, maybe there's another vision for this world that's rooted in a God who gave his life so that you could have life. What if that story were true? And if you are a Christian, listen, the church is in desperate need to recommit itself to a vision of being filled with the fruit of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, not filled with the fruit of so much of what we see in our church today. Fear, anger, alarmism, political idolatry, both on the right and on the left, um, defensiveness, hostility, uh, consumerism, control, all of those things, uh, the fruit of that is leading the church deeper into injustice, abuse, and hypocrisy, all of which the world can see, and because of it, reject Jesus. You know, a lot of times Christians can be so anxious and afraid about any hint or possibility of us trying to save ourselves by our own good works that we actually end up resisting God's good work in our lives and, and refusing to partner with it, and what happens is we end up being shaped more by our culture than we are by the, the fruit of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friends, the only way the world will see the explosive, um, transformative gut love of Jesus is if they can see it in the church. Can they see it in us? Can they see it in you? Can they see it in me? Look at Jesus. Look at him loving you on the cross. Gaze upon him doing that for you and let his love, his gut love, explode in your heart and do a good work in your life. If you're willing, would you pray with me? Abba, we get filled with a lot of different visions of what's best for us. 
And if we're being honest with ourselves, we, we need to confess that uh, most often, Lord, our vision of what's best for ourselves is our own vision, not your vision. But Father, you have uh, created us to be formed in the image of Jesus, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness in the very truest, best sense of what that word really, really means, Lord. Not the fruit of self-righteousness or superiority or um, uh, social hierarchies, but Lord, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the image of Jesus for which you created us. And Father, I pray this morning that you would help all of us to envision a world and lives, our own lives in this world that would be shaped more and more by your vision for our lives. And I pray that you would give us eyes and hearts to be more and more receptive to the only place we can receive and experience that, which is on the cross, through the death, and through the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.